when the landscape changes, not if, but when, we're going to be set up for um, you know significant success because we understand, and I think we're the only operator that can say this, right? This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Kim Rivers, CEO of Truly. Kim, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Excited to dive in. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing awesome. Really excited to talk to Kim and uh, looking forward to trying to hold the West Coast down over here. Yeah, Kim. So just for the record, Kellen and I have a little East Coast, West Coast battle. And I know you have your Southern roots, but if you had to yeah. choose a coast, which one would you choose? Oh, East Coast all the way, baby. That's what the record state, another East Coast. <laughs> so Kim, for our listeners, they're very familiar with what you do. But I think what they don't get to do is get a peek behind the curtain of what it's like to run the largest U.S. cannabis company. Can you give us a day-to-day basis of what a day is like for Kim Rivers? Sure. I mean, every day is a little bit different. That's one of the things I absolutely love about being in this role and um, having the pleasure of being um, CEO of TrueLeave. Um, you know, today, as an example, um, we started off with um, meetings. My day is typically filled with a lot of um, a lot of conversations um, and a lot of meetings that range really a gamut of topics. And so, um, you know, today we have our executive meeting. So it was a time for us to touch base as an executive team to go over our strategic goals, as well as get an update from finance in terms of how we're tracking against some of our initiatives and how we see those playing out, not only for this quarter, but really in for its long-term and mid-term and short-term um, from that respect. Um, and then after that, um, let's see, I had another um, conversation around expansion and what we're doing in certain markets that we're going to be bringing online and making sure that we're all good um, from that perspective. Um, and then of course, preparing a little bit for um, this conversation. Um, and then, uh, you know, talking to folks on some interviews today. Um, so it really does really vary from from day to day. Um, you know, a lot of, um, I'd say, planning and projections and really strategic based conversations in terms of what we're doing and the decisions we're making today and how those will impact tomorrow, along with what I call, you know, swing through meetings. That's kind of a true leave term, meaning that um, we talk a lot about, you know, you put plans in motion, but being very disciplined about making sure that we take the time to analyze the results and take away lessons that we've learned from those actions. And so, for example, this morning in Florida, it was 100% a data-driven conversation around what we're doing and what we've done around the holidays, how those performed, and what we've learned and what our takeaways are and how that's impacting and affecting uh, positioning on a on a near-term and a mid-term basis. And so I say follow-through, right? It's kind of the golf term or a tennis term or what have you, right? It's, it's about the follow-through. Because um, otherwise, I I think that as a large organization specifically, you know, you can get caught in the just, you know, rinse, repeat or day to day or, right, let's just keep going. Um, and it's very easy to do that in cannabis because our pace is so frenzied. But, you know, really, if we if we don't take a, take a minute and um, step back and really dive in um, to ask the question in terms of why and did this do what we thought it was going to do, why or why not um, celebrate the wins, but also um, have opportunity for learning. And um, we think that's super critical. So um, part of today was spent on that as well. Uh, one why that I've been really curious about has been the Harvest Health acquisition. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were chatting earlier and you mentioned uh, in your previous life, you were an MA attorney. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious how much that experience affected the due diligence, the execution, and the integration of Harvest Health with Truly. 
Yeah. I mean, it doesn't hurt. Right. Um, (laughs) um, I think that, um, you know, I think that for me, yes, I'm a recovering, I would say that a lot. I'm a recovering attorney (laughs) and I was on um, M&A and securities and it's M&A and securities work um, for a while. And then on, as an entrepreneur, I also was heavily involved in um, deal work and building portfolios and then repositioning those and selling those um, in the hospitality space primarily. And so um, certainly, you know, um, large acquisitions are not something that is unusual um, for me. So I think that it assisted in the sense that it wasn't, you know, sure, it's a huge deal, right? But I kind of understood going in what it was going to look like, the mechanics, right? What we needed to be, how we need to be organized, what we need to be looking for, how we need to be thinking about, at least from a structural process perspective, um, the transaction. So I think that that certainly helped, um, you know, early on. And I think really my time as an attorney um, and did big, big acquisitions representing Georgia Pacific and some other very, very large companies. What struck me during that period of time is that I noticed sort of differences in terms of strategies and approach during deal negotiation and then immediately following um, a deal closing. um, Because obviously at at that point, then we were no longer involved necessarily. But in the process, right, we're very, very instrumentally involved as, as a lawyer, as legal counsel. And I noticed that the companies that I saw where the deals continued to really be um, beneficial over a long period of time worked very hard to um, make sure that the negotiation process and the setup moving into closing between call it sign and close was amicable, was inclusive and um, had a collaborative feel. And I think that, you know, oftentimes um, in a in a deal, right, things can get um, adversarial. That's not unusual, right? That's not unusual for issues to come up. That's certainly expected. But I think how you handle those and how you set the teams up for success through that process can make all the difference. Because if you're at battle and at war and it's not collaborative at the end of it, right? These folks are going to be your partners. So it becomes very difficult because one day, right, you're you're yelling or, you know, you're upset. And then the next day, right, you're supposed to be in an org structure together and building this the future of this combined organization. And so I would say that really was probably one of the biggest learnings um, that I carried over into um, the the and the team carried over on the through the leadership and of the harvest closing. And um, we began immediately with a small group of business leaders um, meeting really twice a week, which then went to every day um, during the week, right? As we approached closing, working through business issues, making sure that the business decisions were driving as opposed to the lawyers driving, which is kind of funny coming from a lawyer, but not all <laughs> lawyers are there to see a deal closed, right? Um, and so just making sure that, again, we had collaboration and that we really understood each other's perspectives so that, you know, at the end of it, we we did come out a, a stronger team. And, you know, happy to say that all but the um, former Harvest CFO are still with our organization and are very meaningful contributors. They were, um, you know, on the call this morning as part of the executive team um, to the combined organization. And I think that talent retention um, at the top is, is super critical um, as we think about, you know, trickle down effects and um, the talent that we want to retain throughout the org. Was it a $2.1 billion acquisition? Uh, well, I mean, you have to do the share exchange. I mean, that was a reported price, right? At the time, um, there was some movement, so it became less than that um, at closing um, because we it was a, it was a fixed share ratio to 
actually for just that reason to make sure that right as valuation shifted um that the integrity of the of the deal remained and neither party right was kind of equal footing from what we had negotiated but yeah it was a pretty it was a pretty large transaction the largest one in Canada yeah. still to date correct? right yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that, that's what I wanted to confirm was to make sure okay. that is still the largest one to date. <laughs> are there additional challenges that were specific to cannabis that you hadn't faced prior that kind of surprised you along the way I don't think anything that's a surprised me necessarily. I mean, obviously, it's state by state. So, um, you know, we had to go through the regulatory right requirements of every state for transfer. And those are very different from state to state. So it was a lot of work on the um, licensing and regulatory teams, for sure. Um, a lot of coordination around the when and how and, you know, I had to fly um, out to California to one city to get fingerprinted and interviewed as an example. There were all kinds of little nuances. Um, you know, the process in Nevada, is extremely robust and takes a very long time because of their gaming background, right, in terms of how they um, view cannabis licenses. Um, So, I mean, certainly there were nuances that were unique to the cannabis industry. I wouldn't say anything that was surprising necessarily um, since we've been through, you know, a number of of different state regulatory situations in the past. But, um, and, you know, last, that in that year, um, which I could still say last year because we're in December, but in that year, we actually closed seven M&A transactions with Harvest being one of them. So um, we certainly were comfortable in the M&A space. Um, but, you know, obviously we had more more of those, it was just more of the regulatory requirements that, uh, that we had to pass. So Harvest Health's footprint is geographically very different than True Leaves. That, of course, plays into you guys' larger strategy. Were there other kind of... Uh, targets that you had been looking at or was Harvest Health kind of like the prettiest girl at the dance and you guys were just trying to court her? We're constantly looking at opportunities. Um, We are constantly scanning the landscape, you know, proactively. So in terms of what we might be looking for, of course, also reactively in terms of folks that may be, you know, putting themselves um, on the on the block for sale. So it really is. um, And that's a discipline that we that we've exercised throughout True Leaves entire existence. You know, it's something that that I was pretty, you know, dead set on early on. I think your pipeline has to remain full. I think you need to be in the conversation. I think you want to have the phone call when, right, someone is is considering or even thinking about. I mean, I have tons of conversations with folks that are just like, hey, you know, one day or where was your, you know, where would your head be on, you know, about this or that? And so um, I think it's that's really important for an organization. And um, as it relates to Harvest specifically, we had looked at a number of opportunities um, behind the scenes, right? Our board, and management aligned around our hub strategy, where we felt that it was really going to be important from a positioning, long-term positioning um, perspective to have regional hubs set up um, both for connectivity to customer, as well as um, supply chain and distribution um, capabilities for the future when the landscape changes, which at some point we we know that it will. But also for us to be able to have short-term or near-term operational efficiencies to be able to share teams between markets, share supplies and buying power between markets and really operate again more efficiently. And so when we looked at the kind of the map and we looked at the regions, you know, we we strategically decided that we wanted to have obviously a very strong southeast presence, which we felt pretty comfortable that we can build organically for the most part. I mean, we'll see how it how it plays out, but we feel like we've got a better than better than 50% shot, right, to to grow that organically with our um our strength in the southeast already. The northeast, we had a foothold, right? We had bought some businesses in Pennsylvania three that we had um, we had started merging together. Um, we were in uh, 
time had a, a little small foothold in, in Connecticut. We were in Massachusetts. We were opening West Virginia organically. So we had some activity happening in, in the Northeast, but it wasn't completely gelled or organized quite yet. Um, and then we had a you know kind of small footprint in California. And so we um, you know looked at the markets and really made the decision that we felt like if we were going to expand beyond the East Coast, that really the Southwest corridor made the most sense for us. From a I'll call it from a policy politics kind of all of the all of the reasons, as well as not having some of the onerous requirements that some of the other West Coast markets have, um, making it you know less than desirable from a returns or profitability perspective. And so you know when you put all of those things on the paper, um, Harvest jumped out as a natural target for us. Um, we were able to you know, increase our footprint um, in Florida. We were able to increase our footprint and really solidify positioning in the Northeast with the number one affiliate retail network in Pennsylvania. We were able to solidify then a, a foothold, really a, a strategic um, base, if you will, in the Southwest with, again, the number one um, retailer in uh, the market of Arizona. We also saw a lot of opportunity to lean into what truly does um, and really to add value um, to the combined portfolio. And so when we think about you know, our expertise in, and it's funny because most folks think of us as a retailer and certainly we have led with retailer, retail. We're the number one retailer, in, I guess, on the planet. Um, <laughs> to cannabis, which is weird to say, I would say in the US, but someone reminded me this past week at RQA, they were like, but isn't it um, global? I was like, oh yeah, I guess you're right. Um, <laughs> which is cool. So, yeah, you know, but to support that retail, we also have close to, if not the largest um, supply chain footprint in the space. And so, you know, we operate over 4 million square feet of cultivation. We operate at scale. We understand manufacturing at scale, right? And, um, you know, in Florida alone, we're um, producing and selling, not just producing, but selling over a ton of cannabis every single week. So we do understand and have, you know, expertise from a supply chain perspective and felt that, you know, Harvest had really leaned into retail and had not had the opportunity to um, focus and or invest as much on supply chain. So we felt that we could come in and really, um, you know, solidify or strengthen and really insulate positions in those markets. And so all of those things came together. And to be just perfectly candid, I called Steve White. And um, so I, that was a pursuit. That wasn't a, they were up for sale. That was a me calling him and saying, listen, and they had just gone through a turnaround. So they were turning the page on back to profitability at that point, right? They had shed a lot of the weight that was kind of overhanging in some of their go-go acquisition days. And um, we're in the right mindset, I think, for a partnership with a company like ours, who um, also comes from a very, um, you know, I would say financially disciplined um, background. And so just said, you know, listen, I think, you know, we've got the capital to come in and really invest in some of these markets to strengthen the position, you know, to secure kind of our vision for the future, which we went over and um, his board and, and himself, um, you know, really were very receptive. And that's how the conversation started. And, um, you know, I guess you would say the rest is history. It was a long time from then to that actually started, I think, in the last part of the year before um, we announced the deal. So I think it took us maybe like four or five months to get to a place where we were, you know, where, where then, you know, the deal deal was announced. So, and then it was a very quick from uh, deal announcement to closing again by design to make sure that we had and could channel the momentum of the team, et cetera, um, and, and get, get through to closing. 
I think that's so important because I think when people see M&A, they get wrapped up in the headlines and they expect immediate results. And I think the one thing that your team recognizes is that one plus one doesn't equal two, it equals three, maybe four, given that synergies that come together. So synergies, unfortunately, take some time, right? There's overlapping of positions and resources and bringing that together. So how, how long does that take? And when do you expect to see some of those synergistic results kind of adding to the bottom line and the benefits for Trulieve? Yeah, for sure. So I think we've been try at least we've tried to be very transparent in our journey, right, with integration. And you're right. I mean, this is a huge transaction. There were a lot of folks um, affected and impacted, and um, it does take time, right? We knew right away, um, and actually talked about this before closing, that we were likely going to be jettisoning certain assets and certain parts of the harvest portfolio, um, just because we saw the numbers and it, it didn't necessarily make sense. We wanted to get closed own them, really make sure that we understood, make sure that there wasn't some other opportunity that we may have missed, right? Um, sitting on the sidelines versus being in the driver's seat. Um, but you've seen us, right, over the last couple of quarters do just that. Um, you know, we've we've closed um, certain markets that quite frankly just weren't contributive. Um, they they were cash flow negative. They were, you know, it just they just didn't make sense. The the footprint wasn't large enough to be efficient. So, you know, to have a, a single site that's landlocked that can only produce X amount and you're only on one part of the supply chain, um, it was either, you know, we were going to have to make significant investment there to really build an entire market around that particular asset or make the decision to let it go. And, um, you know, for us, again, it depends. Is it in a region that we're trying to, uh, you know, that we're trying to optimize? Is it close? in proximity? Are there efficiencies that we can gain in other ways? If the answer to those are all no, and there's no path to profitability, then for us, it's a pretty easy black and white. We've got to let it go. And so we've been executing against that. And um, we also, of course, have been investing in and really spending a lot of um, time and energy on the supply chain of the legacy harvest assets to bring those up to speed, um, evaluating those on a site-by-site basis. Same thing, right? Is it something that makes sense? There's you know some small assets that have been scattered that they just don't make any sense. And, you know, it's so again, making those decisions and turning the page, if you will, is what we is what we say. And so really, we're going to be done, I think, with the majority of those activities by year end. That's certainly been our stated goal is to get through the vast bulk. And I mean, over 80, 90 percent of, of um, integration by year end. We're on track to achieve that. Um, and so really coming out of first quarter, you know, we should all see. And, and I think even, you know, it's, it's starting to ramp coming into Q4. In, in Q1. So from my perspective, you know, everything is on track, right? And it's interesting because of course you've got the macro environment now on top of it. And so it sort of muddies the waters. It not sort of, it does. It muddies the waters from a clarity perspective in terms of what's contributing where and how and, and how is um, you know, macro contributing to consumer behavior um vis-a-vis um, you know, is, is integration going well and and how is that flowing through? Um so I think that can be a bit confusing for folks for sure. Um but again, I think as from from my perspective, um, integration and those activities are continuing on on path and on track. Yeah, those are hard decisions, right? You have to set the team up for success, and sometimes that means recognizing that this is not part of the future, and unfortunately, it has to be let go so that the team can be positioned for success. And one of the things that I'm most fascinated about truly is the hub and spoke model. Announced in 2020, that obviously had a big focus on what the future would look like, not current cannabis operations. Can you kind of expand on what were the thinking behind that strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think that we are a, a team and a board that is constantly, again, focused on 
today, certainly, and making sure we're making the most of today, but also on what's, you know, what's next and where are we headed and making sure that we have an identified and communicated path, strategic path forward, um, and that we're making moves and we're executing against that strategy. Um, One of my biggest pet peeves is, you know, to spend um, time developing a strategic plan, developing strategic goals, and then have it sit on the shelf, um, right, in a binder typically, right, that never to be referenced again. And so um, we spend some pretty concentrated time with one another um, every year in January, um, where we talk a lot about, you know, where we're headed and, and where we want to be positioned as an organization. And so the Hub and Spoke model came from that work alongside the board. And, you know, my board is fantastic. Um, it's a very diverse board, but I mean, just the background and the expertise that they bring to the table, they're a very involved and engaged board and um, just really meaningfully contribute to, to our to our direction. And we realized, right, that we needed to diversify, one, right? But two, and two, we also wanted to make sure that, because we had seen a number of cannabis companies get so big, so fast with really, from at least from where we sat, no, necessarily, no necessary rhyme or reason in terms of the why they were going into these markets or what their long-term vision or strategy was um, as these markets either continued to develop or not, right? And so for us, it was very important to define what does success look like? What is our goal um, with expansion? And how are we going to measure against that? Again, short-term, mid-term, long-term. And so um, when we think about it for us, right, we are an organization that wants to have depth and scale. We believe that true connectivity to a customer, you know, it goes back to the 2018, 2019 days where, you know, everyone had this map slide and it was just pins on a map. And then it was this whole TAM, right? Total addressable market. I have, you know, three stores in California, but somehow I'm going to capture the entire population of California through those three stores, right? I mean, we saw it all the time. I mean, oh, I have a, you know, 20,000 square foot cultivation, you know, facility but it's in this state. And so that means, right, I have the opportunity to have, you know, these millions of people, right, enjoy my cannabis products. Like that's false. Like that's a lie. <laughs> and so, and it all, I used to get so frustrated going to these conferences and then having to be in meetings and answer the question, like, well, where's your map slide? And I'm like, oh my gosh, we're in a market of 21 million people. And we actually have the opportunity to service these people. And like, why don't we ask about how many people can you serve through a register? And how are you doing time? Anyway, what's your efficiency? Like what, how many products can you produce? And how are you distributing those products effectively and efficiently? So anyway, as an industry, right, we have some maturation still to do um, in that arena or that vein. And so, um, you know, for, for us, again, when we thought about expansion, we wanted to make sure that we were holding true to what we knew our core values our core truths are, is that we believe in actually connecting on a meaningful level with as many customers and or patients as possible. Um, We believe in efficiencies of depth and scale in a market. And we also believe in optimizing our footprint for today, but also for the future. And so that really was where the hub and spoke model came from is because in some markets, right, we know that we can't necessarily get depth and scale like we can in other markets because of the regulatory restrictions on that particular market. You can only have X amount of canopy, you can only have X amount of stores. Okay, so what if you could kind of hybrid it by getting adjacent, you know, so in in other words, the region had depth and scale, and we were at least were able to combine, again, buying power, talent, 
know-how, et cetera, so that as a region, we're able to get some of those efficiencies so it can maybe make sense, right, in some of those in some of those markets, although it doesn't always. And so, you know, again, I think that, um, you know, for us, executing against that has been a North Star for us. And um, when the landscape changes, not if, but when, we're going to be set up for, um, you know, significant success because we understand, and I think we're the only operator that can say this, right? We operate and distribute. I mean, if you just look at our Florida footprint, we're operating millions of square feet of cultivation and production. We're putting out a whole catalog of SKUs and we're effectively distributing that every single day to 121 stores across the state. And so we understand we've got the systems built we know how to do it, you know, where a lot of other operators have operated, you know, 10 stores here, five stores here, 20 stores here. And I just think when you level up and you really build scale, it's a whole different, it's a whole different ballgame. That's what I can tell you. <laughs> there are a lot of, um, a lot of lessons to learn along the way. So with the, with the hub and spoke model, it turns out that the state that you choose to kind of build that infrastructure in is going to be critical. Uh, would you say that regulatory kind of uh, environment is the most crucial data point? Or is there other kind of data points that your team considers when like debating which state to deploy capital for infrastructure in? Yeah, I mean, so we have three cornerstone markets today, right? It's it's Florida, Pennsylvania, and Arizona. In those markets, right, they all have something in common and that we are able to hold a market-leading position at what we would consider some level of scale for that region. And so, for example, obviously Florida's Florida, but um, in Pennsylvania, right, there are 20 dispensaries held through affiliates. And so that's the leading footprint. And then our cultivation has opportunity to be the leading footprint, right, in, in Pennsylvania. So that is scale, not just for that market, but really when you look around at the surrounding region um, and the opportunities for market to market, that is the market that we can actually build the most or have an opportunity to build the most scale effectively in. In Arizona, right, similar. So, you know, the leading retail footprint, again, with an opportunity certainly to be the leading cultivator and processor manufacturer there if we wanted to be, right? I mean, there's some dynamics in Arizona, you got greenhouse stuff. So it's a, a bit of a different of a different animal on that front, um, certainly on the indoor side. So yeah, I mean, certainly regulatory plays into it, for sure. Seems for like sure. your team constantly has a focus on the future with the hub and smoke model and these other new markets that are soon to be unlocked. Is that where Cannabis 2.0 kind of fits in? So Cannabis 2.0 is very excited and the team has got a lot of energy behind it. Um, it means a, a few different things, right? One, um, what we have definitely realized, I think we as just people and you know consumers, we're all consumers, right? Have, have realized in the last, call it 12 to 24 months, certainly through COVID, is the um, importance of technology and the importance of personalization, right? And I mean, COVID did a lot of weird things to, to us as a, as humans, I think. Um, and, um, you know, again, I think when we all became more um, technologically, right, savvy and leaned into to technology um, and leaned into tech, technology to connect and now have a bit of an expectation that when you engage in commerce, that there is more and more personalization right, to what our particular needs, preferences, drivers are. And we expect kind of folks to know whether it's conscious or unconscious and whether it's scary, right, because things are all of a sudden popping up on your phone that, you know, you're like, wait a minute, how did they know that I actually am in the market for whatever it is, right? Um, you know, or or not, um, you know, that, that whole idea of hyper-personalization um, is real, 
and um, you know important. And also this idea of unified commerce, meaning that you know commerce happens in a lot of different channels. And um, you know cannabis is pretty old school really. Um, And the reason for that, there's a lot of reasons for that. I think one of the primary reasons for that is because we don't have the ability to to lean into some of these larger platforms, right? We are confined state by state um, for the time being. And so the amount of investment and and what makes sense, um, sometimes it's not even available, quite frankly, some of these these platforms that you would typically utilize um, if you're in like the manufacturing and distribution CPG um, arena. Um, But that's all going to shift. And I think it's going to shift pretty fast when it does. And so um, for us, it's thinking about, can we start and end our thinking with the customer? Everything that we talk about, it truly begins with what's that customer experience? How is this customer going to engage with us here? Right? What is um, start to finish, right? That customer journey and understanding, right? Who who our customer is and meeting them where they're at. And so Cannabis 2.0 for us is building on and really leaning into the technology and the database that we've built already. Um, So we've been, I think, ahead of the curve for sure on the technology front. Um, I've had, you know, a technology or data person um, high level on within the C-suite from our founding, from the very beginning. Um, we, we always believed that that was a really critical part of um, how we were building the company. Um, we've integrated SAP um, across the organization. We have a couple of states left to go, but having that as an enterprise ERP platform is a game changer. I mean, every large scale, um, again, distribution company has, whether it's, you know, SAP or Oracle, right? There's one of the two and they wouldn't work with us. So we had to go with SAP because we're a cannabis <laughs> company. So, um, but now apparently they're in the, they're in the... Mix. Now they're okay with you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now they saw SAP was working with us. So now they're fine. Um, but, you know, that tech stack and how we're able to build on that. And, you know, we launched our consumer data platform, um, this year in key markets where we are, you know, again, I now know, right, that Brian, you're a concentrate guy and you prefer Shatter and your favorite strains are, you know, XYZ. And, but also, you also buy every third purchase, you also buy, right, um, a, maybe a cured a live resin vape. Right, um, in similar strains, or on a special occasion, you'll level up and maybe you'll buy a Blue River sauce cart or what, whatever it is. We know that Brian is going to react and respond positively to these types of products and this type of messaging. And so Brian will get special exclusive information on when those products drop, right? Inviting him in, um, letting him know ahead of time, hey, you know, this Thursday at your local, you know, Tampa tree leave, right? There's going to be XYZ available for you. And so I think for us, just again, really being able to understand who Brian is and how that may change over time, right? Because, and we see that a lot, you know, someone might start as a new customer with us and then their tastes and preferences evolve um, through their use and through their familiarity with the product, um, the product. And so, and then also being ready for when we are able to direct sell to customers and um, being ready for when we have optionality around distribution partners and where and who and what that might look like. Um, you know, there's a lot of decisions that are going to need to be made um, in pretty short order as the landscape changes and just being thoughtful and strategic in terms of how we're, how we're positioned um, and where we, where we want to go and where, as importantly, where we do not want to go. 
Um, I think it's very important to have both of those both of those defined in a strategic positioning conversation. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. To be- Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked. Continued.